You're listening to the Based on History podcast. All units, Irene. I say again, Irene. And we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time. And we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. You tell him I'm coming. And hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! That they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you're here? Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to the Based on History podcast. As always, I'm your host, John Nydick, and I have something a little bit uh, different today that we're going to cover, and I first wanted to start off and say that I know it's been a while since I have released a, a another episode, and I've started a new job, and I do this podcast for fun and because I enjoy it, and I hope that it bring some level of enjoyment and, you know, more or less education and his, history and movies and all that stuff to to the audience. But this is not my full-time job. So when I start new work, the the space in between episodes is probably going to continue to be a little bit wider than it was earlier on with my episodes. But I just wanted to put this out and reassure people that the episodes will keep coming. The amount of preparation and research that I do before we record an episode is is quite a bit, and so I w- don't want the quality of episodes to go down. So to get that amount of preparation and research done, it's just taking me a little bit longer than it normally does, and so the episodes will continue to come out. I'm working on one right now. If you follow me on Instagram, you know that it's the 13 hours about the uh, Battle of Benghazi. Uh, so I'm working on that one right now, but today I wanted to just do a kind of a fun little episode and uh, just so I can get some content out there and get people's thoughts about stuff like that. And, you know, I, I kind of did the Based on History minis to kind of give me some shorter episodes to things that I could talk about to put more content out there. And then some of my minis, I've found out I'm doing not quite, but almost as much research for my minis to make sure I got everything in line and and everything like that as I'm doing for the main episodes. So I'm trying to find some smaller, quicker things that I can talk about to just kind of keep the content rolling, let people know that I haven't gone away, the, that the, the podcast is still going strong. Uh, so today I am going to cover, well... Let me start with this. I you I, the the whole entire point of the podcast is to kind of look at movies and how historically accurate they are. Mainly war movies because that's just my level of interest not only in movies but also in history. And I started thinking and you see these kinds of lists all over the place, top 10 most historically accurate, top 10 least historically accurate, top 10 war movies, top 10 history movies, you know, all, all those kinds of lists. And I was looking I was looking at a couple of those lists the other day and thinking, oh, maybe I'll put together a top 10 list of most historically accurate movies and most historically inaccurate movies. And then I realized, like, well, 
if I do these short episodes about these movies, then that kind of cuts them out of me, you know, doing real episodes for them. And so I thought maybe I'll do a list later on down the line after I've done a bunch, you know, a lot more movies instead of kind of ruining some of the little things about those movies that I would want to talk about in a main episode. And so I came up with the idea to talk about the, you know, I say top 10, they're in no real order, but top 10 most awesome movie soldiers. And these, this is this is my list, and this isn't any. I kind of when I started compiling the list, I was thinking like, okay, am I doing my favorite ones? Am I doing the who I would grade as the kind of top best actual best soldiers? And so then I realized I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do the kind of top ten movie soldiers from like my personal experience from growing up and throughout my career in the military and kind of ones that I just kind of gravitated towards and liked in the movies a lot. And so I was like, all right, these are my kind of just top 10 overall favorite, so so to speak. So there's no real order. It doesn't matter if they live or die, if it's historically, if it's a, you know, based on history movie or a historical fiction movie. Um, or if there is some movie soldier out there that is better as a soldier than them or anything like that. They're just kind of ten soldiers that when I watch the movie, I kind of like them the best in the movie. And so we're going to go down the list and then we'll kind of, I'll read the list and then we'll dive into each one specifically and talk about kind of the things that I liked about them and kind of just go from there. So like I said, this is in no real order, but this is just kind of the I just the ones that came into my mind. And as I started thinking, I just as I got to the ones, I was like, oh, yeah, him. Oh, yeah, him. Oh, yeah, him. And I just wrote them down. So here we go. We're going to start with Private Jackson from Saving Private Ryan. We're going to go to Gary Gordon from Black Hawk Down. Colonel Benjamin Martin from The Patriot. Hawkeye from Last of the Mohicans. Lieutenant Spears from Band of Brothers. Matthew Axelson from Lone Survivor, Red from Tears of the Sun, Tristan from King Arthur, Maximus from Gladiator, Lieutenant Schaefer from Where Eagles Dare, and then I have an honorable mention of the entire group of the Dirty Dozen. And we'll just start from the top and work our way back down and get into why these guys meant a lot to me when I was growing up and things like that and and I'm sure everyone has their own list, and probably some of the ones are on here, and you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I love that guy, too. And other ones, you're like, huh, why is why is that guy on your list? I didn't really like him. But you'll see as I start talking about them why I, why I specifically like them, and it's my list. So here we go. We'll start with Private Jackson from Saving Private Ryan. He's played by Barry Pepper, and there's a few, there's a few snipers on this list, uh, you know, and that makes sense. Uh, I always wanted to be a sniper from a fairly young age, or even when I was young and I didn't know exactly that I wanted to be a sniper, I always thought snipers are cool. And I think I think almost everyone thinks snipers are cool. There's this element to a sniper that is just, you know, for lack of a better word, is, is cool. 
the fact that they're a highly trained, they can do things that other soldiers can't. They're hidden, they sneak, they have a like a skill set that not every soldier has. And you know, they're they're a they're a force multiplier on the battlefield. Snipers are one of the reasons that when you're on patrol or walking through the woods, you crouch and you move from cover to cover and you peek out to see what's going on is because there's things out there that you can't see that can reach out and touch you. And from a you know, from a young age, watching Saver Private Ryan, I believe that, you know, Private Jackson, the sniper, is he is completely written to be cool. Everything he does is cool in the movie. From the beginning. You know, he he shows up on the beach when they're pinned down along the shingle. And he's got the deer antler knife strapped to his vest. You know, he's carrying the sniper rifle. He's from, you know, I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say he's from like Tennessee or Kentucky or something like that. You know, Barry Pepper is actually Canadian, but he plays the part great because he's kind of got that country draw to him anyways, even though he's Canadian. And they've put, I'll just talk a little bit about what what he's wearing to me that kind of is cool about him. First off, he's wearing that that D-Day assault vest that the Rangers and some of the other soldiers wear on D-Day. And it's kind of funny because I think the D-Day vest looks really, really cool. It's kind of like a step in the modern direction of, you know, assault vests and, and kits and, and things like that. The funny thing about that is I think they look cool. I think a lot of people think they look cool. But if you read the soldiers' accounts of these D-Day vests, everyone absolutely hated them. They were hot. They were heavy. They hung down too low, so they got in the way of you while you were running. They got waterlogged. And it was hard to get to the stuff in your vest when you actually needed it, which was the whole point of them creating the vest in the first place. The, the actual, you know, intel from soldiers who use these on D-Day, they very quickly after they move off the beaches, these guys are just chucking them or burying them. You know, I think the D-Day Museum in Normandy, they have one on display and they found it folded up and under a bush, you know, from a, from a soldier who's just like, yeah, I'm not wearing this anymore. And you get stuff like that. It's funny to me that that kind of replicates throughout history. There's all sorts of equipment that the army issues you. And if you wore all of it, you would look ridiculous and be unable to move. You'd, you know, it's it's crazy um, that that's you know still going back uh, all all the way through history. He's he's got the Springfield 1903 sniper variant. He's carrying multiple scopes uh, with him. You know, he's got the kind of standard issue Weaver uh, scope, and then he's got the really long, big Unertle, um scope for long distance or in the final battle and everything like that. He's got those cool southern sayings. He's quoting scripture to himself while he's sniping enemy soldiers. There's this religious aspect, you know, to him. And he's got the feather. If you look at him, you don't it's not ever brought up in the movie, but it was done specifically that he has a black feather in his helmet. And this is a tribute there's a couple scenes that are tributes, but he is wearing this feather as a tribute to Carlos Hathcock, who was a Marine sniper in Vietnam, and he is one of the most famous snipers throughout history, and he wore a feather in his hat, and they put that in the movie as a tribute to him. 
And the other thing that's a tribute to Carlos Hathcock is the famous scene with the German sniper in the tower that Private Jackson shoots him and the bullet goes through the scope and into, into the uh, German sniper's head. And there's a story, there's a famous story of Carlos Hathcock of him basically on a sniper v. sniper mission in the jungle. And the way he finds a sniper is that he sees the glint from the sniper's scope. And he says that the only way that you could see that is if they were both looking at each other at the exact same time. And he shot and he shot the Viet Cong sniper through the scope. And they've done some tests. Famously, Mythbusters has done some tests. And more or less, they said that you can't do that because of all the different things that are actually in a scope, in a sniper rifle scope. They would have deflected the bullet. But they've also done some tests to show that those Viet Cong scopes, and depending on the bullet and how you shot it and how the arc was and where it actually impacted into the scope that it could go through. Now, I'm not saying that it would go directly through just like the movie did, but the bullet could hit the scope at the right angle to go through the scope at some angle to hit the other sniper in the head. So it may not, it's not going to be movie picture perfect straight, because bullets don't fly in a straight line, right? So it's not going to be straight line through the scope into the eyeball, but it could go through the scope and, and kill, kill the enemy sniper. So everything about Private Jackson is super, super cool. Even when he dies, he's up in the tower just dropping guys left and right and spotting for the machine gunners up there with him. And then they have to fire a tank round into the tower to, to take him out. So he's, he's just awesome. Uh, the next one we're going to talk about is Gary Gordon from Black Hawk Down. And he's played by, I know I'm going to get this wrong anyways, and I looked it up uh, to make sure I could try and pronounce it correctly. But Nicolaj Coaster Waldau and... <laughs> Yeah, anyways, I know I butchered his name, but everyone knows who I'm talking about. He plays Jamie Lannister in Game of Thrones, and I talked a lot about Gary Gordon um, and Randy Shigart in the Black Hawk Down episode, so I won't spend too, too much time on him. I'll just kind of rehash some of the things I talked about, and just all the Delta guys in Black Hawk Down look cool. They've got those kind of skateboarder helmets. They've got their kid all tacked out. They've got all the cool stuff, you know. Gary Gordon is he's carrying the Silence Car 15 with the CCO on top and there's just something very cool to me about these guys basically knowing that they're going to their death to go and try as best they can to save their fellow soldier and the pilot that's taking care of them in you know missions beforehand and 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 things like that uh, that, that always just really resonated with me a lot and like I said in the in the episode, I used to play that scene of Black Hawk Down when I was younger. I'd get all my army stuff on, I'd go outside, and I would play that scene where they die, and I would just like die over and over and over again. A little morbid, but it just I think even at a young age it really had an impact on me that what these guys were willing to do for their fellow soldier and this the capabilities of the of a sniper, you know, being able to put shots exactly where you want them to take down a lot of enemy. And um, it was, you know, kind of not the exact start, but one of the main things that kind of got me thinking, oh, this is really cool. I would I would like to do this. And then as I got older, that transitioned from thinking it's just cool in a movie to really kind of doing things to kind of hone that skill. So that, you know, like I said, we covered it before, so I'm not going to spend too much time on him. So we'll move down the list. 
And we're gonna that brings us to Colonel Benjamin Martin in The Patriot, played by Mel Gibson. Now, this movie gets a lot of hate on the historical accuracy side, and I understand what they say about it, but I disagree with all of it because this is a historical fiction movie. It never once says this movie is based on history. So we may cover it as a historical fiction movie, but I'm not going to grade it like I grade movies that are, you know, at the beginning, say, based on true events or based on historical events or, you know, things like that. There is no one named Colonel Benjamin Martin. Now, he is based on a couple real figures in history that do similar type things, one of them being Francis Marion, the, the, the Swamp Fox, and they rely heavily on his exploits during the war to create this fake character of Colonel Benjamin Martin. Anyways, we're going to talk more about the character specifically. And from the beginning of the movie, you can tell that you know, from the opening monologue, that this guy is a very experienced soldier, and he has a past and a history of fighting. And you can tell that by the words he's saying, and you can see him placing the tomahawk in, like, the kind of um, trunk and closing it and things like that. And you can you can tell the way he talks before the assembly in South Carolina and things of that, that his reputation precedes him wherever he goes. And, you know, his sons talk talk about it to him and ask him about it. And he won't talk about it. And so even though this man, he has a plantation and he has children and and he's a po- kind of a politician now, he he's capable and it's bottled up. And you're kind of waiting for it to be unleashed because you all, you, we all know what the movie's about when we go to watch it. It's going to be an American Revolution story. And so when it finally happens, it happens in this unbelievably intense way. He loses his son. You know, his second eldest is killed by, by the uh, British cavalry officer, and then he snaps. And his house is on fire, and he goes into the house. He runs upstairs to get all of his gear, and he grabs, like, eight rifles and four pistols, his knife, his tomahawk, and all of his gear, and he comes out of the house carrying all of this, and you can see it. You can see the change not only in him, but you can see the change in the way his children turn and look at him. Because before this, they've only known him as dad, the plantation owner, and the farmer. And they look at him, and they now see him as the soldier. And he basically treats his two other sons like they're part of his squad, like they're like they're soldiers. He hands them the rifles. He reminds them of the training that he's given them from the from the hunting that they've done. And he says, let's go. And they take off through the forest. And that, that scene in the in the woods where they ambush the British convoy with Heath Ledger's character tied to the back of the wagon is one of the most intense scenes I've I've ever seen because you can you can see it in all in Mel Gibson's face. And it's just one of the coolest scenes. You know, I almost don't know how to describe how cool it is. I mean, if you've seen the movie, you know. I mean, it's basically one guy and two kids take out like 30 British soldiers just going down the line. And he's speed reloading his pistols and he's speed reloading his rifles. And these are all things that he learned during the French and Indian War. And you can just see it all being unloaded all at once. And he's picking off the officers and his sons are picking off the officers. And he's 
dodging between trees and he's jumping behind rocks and then he goes down there to do you know from hand hand to hand combat with these British soldiers and he's got his tomahawk and he's got his knife and he's just going through them like crazy and then you see him lose it and all that emotion from it, it's a combination of his past experiences in war him losing his wife before the movie begins to just losing a son to going back into that world of warfare all culminating in that last scene of him in the creek bed with that one British soldier who unfortunately is just torn to pieces with with the tomahawk and it's a very very powerful scene that I, now I look back on it I can see how emotional and powerful that scene is but when I first watched it I was just blown away by how cool everything was and just how awesome it was watching him work the tomahawk and throw the tomahawk and work the rifles and manipulate the flintlock and how fast he's speed road reloading excuse me it's just very 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 cool and then it goes on to you know the kind of guerrilla warfare for the for the rest of the movie until the climactic battle at at the end and it has another great fight scene between uh jason isaac who plays colonel tavington and Benjamin Martin uh, and Mel, Mel Gibson. And it's just awesome watching them fight. You know, one's got the sword and the bayonet, and, and he's got the tomahawk and his knife, and they're shooting at each other, and he's taking out the horse with the American flag, which is like uber, <laughs> uber American patriotism. I love it. And uh, the whole movie is just awesome, watching, you know, kind of the bushcraft skills because they're hiding in the swamp and they're striking out and they're doing quick strikes and and all, and all this, this great stuff. I mean, I think he's a great, great character he's super cool um but yeah so now we'll move on and we're going to talk about uh matthew axelson from lone survivor uh, another sniper played by ben foster and if you've seen lone survivor you know how powerful the movie is and how you know from a soldier's standpoint and watching a movie standpoint just how awesome all four of these guys are who are on this mission and the things that they went through in that battle and how outnumbered they are and when you look at the actual uh record of the battle versus the retelling of the story from marcus latrell the number of taliban vary greatly and i believe it's somewhere in between you know the some people say there weren't more than like 10 or 15 taliban again i i, I just i refuse to believe that if there were only 10 or 12 i believe that those four men would have basically wiped them out no problem. And the reason I don't believe that is because they came under a lot of small arms fire. They came under mortar fire. They came under RPG fire. And they came under heavy machine gun fire. If the amount of fire that they're coming under in is even remotely close to what Marcus is saying, it takes multiple men to do some of those, some of those uh, weapon systems. And therefore, you can't be under small arms fire and heavy machine gun fire and mortar fire all at the same time with just like 10 guys. It, it, it just wouldn't, they wouldn't be as pinned down and under constant fire all the time. Obviously, you can switch back and forth between an RPG or an AK-47 and, and things like that. They But they wouldn't have the maneuverability to flex on this team of four with just 10 guys if they were having to do all of those things. So I, I it may not be 200, but it was a lot more than just 10. Uh, that's that's just what I personally believe. But when we look at the... We're not talking about his, history at this moment. We're talking about 
the movie. And the movie does a great job in the battle portraying what Marcus writes down in the book and how the battle went. But when you watch the movie, to me, the guy who stands out the most in the battle is Axelson. He is... He's getting wounded all the time. He gets shot in the head. He gets shot in the arm. And he just continues to fight until his last bullet and his last breath. And the the two scenes that really kind of stand out to me with him specifically are the scene where he gets shot in the arm and this guy's running at him and he shoots him and the guy falls on top of him. And then another guy jumps on top of him when he's kind of pinned in between these two big rocks, and he grabs the rifle, and the AK-47 fires as he's bringing it down, and then he basically fights the guy, smashes his head against the rock, and then puts two rounds in him to make sure he's dead, and then just gets right back into the fight. Just like, all right, that threat's eliminated, back into the fight. And then the next one that really stands out to me is is when he dies, and we we don't know exactly how how he dies in in real life because Marcus Luttrell and him got separated but they did find his body and they found some of his gear and so we can kind of piece together how he how he died and I think the representation of how he dies in the movie is is about as accurate as you can make it and kind of be respectful to him in in the way he died and they don't show this in the movie but in the book when it's just the two of them left and they kind of do an ammo check and they realize how much, you know, how many magazines and how many pistol clips and things like that they, they have left with them. And then they get separated by an RPG explosion that basically blows them apart from each other. And then then Marcus is kind of on, on his own. And we know how many magazines from Marcus Luttrell's uh, report that how many that uh, Axe had. And when they find him, they find the magazines and clips and gear around him, and they're all gone. They're all empty. He used every single bullet he had. And they show that very well in the movie, that he is wounded multiple times. He's losing a lot of blood. You can tell he's, you know, he's bre- his breathing is, is, is labored. And he finally gets to the end, and he, has his, he fires until his pistol's completely out, and he sits there and just stares death straight in the face until he is eventually killed. It's very, very powerful. Uh, the any, any scene with Ben Foster in it, uh, I think he's an amazing actor, and this is the one that really sticks out to me from him. Uh, I think he does a, a great job paying tribute to this real-life man. The rest of the scenes are just awesome in general with, with him fighting, and when they're falling down the mountain... And uh, how realistic they portrayed that with the stuntmen and what they what they did. And I don't want to spend too much time on that because I want to talk. I haven't done Lone Survivor as a full episode yet, and we and we will. So I don't want to give away too much of the little tidbits and things like that that I know. But I just I just find him very very inspiring and just from a cool factor, very very cool. All right, moving on down the list, we're going to talk about Hawkeye from. Last of the Mohicans, and if he's got a bunch of names, he goes by Hawkeye, he goes by Long Rifle, he goes by like Natty Boopoo or something like that. That's kind of like his Indian name, and he's played by Daniel Day Lewis in this movie. And we've talked about Daniel Day Lewis in the Gangs of New York episode. And anytime he takes on a role, he is going to put his 
every fiber of his being into that character. And Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, lived in the woods for I don't know how many months and built his own this and built his own that and learned how to carry the rifle and reload the rifle to, to the point where it was just all second nature to him. And it really comes out in the film because he they they film him doing all of those things, running and reloading at the same time. And it, it's a lot of the same things that drew me to him when I was younger are the same things that drew me to Mel Gibson, you know, uh, Benjamin Martin and the Patriot. They're very, very similar kind of bushcraft, backwoodsmen, frontiersmen who have the kind of, you know, Indian influence in in their way they fight. And obviously, this character specifically was raised by, you know, an Indian tribe, and he has a father and a brother who have raised him as one of their own. So he wears all the, you know, the stockings and the leggings, and he carries the tomahawk and the knife, and it's just awesome the way he, they're, they're they're sprinting through the woods, and it, it's just it's just all very very cool, and it has this historical fiction backdrop of. The French and Indian War, and so I I'll, I want to cover this movie as well in my historical fiction section and all the things that they do get right because from a historical standpoint they do get a lot of things right. It's just a the main characters are all all made up. So then we'll move on to Lieutenant Spears from Band of Brothers, and I want to cover Band of Brothers in an episode, but it's a you know it's a mini series, so there's ten episodes. And I don't feel like one episode is enough to cover all of Band of Brothers. And so I want to kind of split it up and maybe do two episodes per. And we'll have like a little bit of a series of Band of Brothers. But there's so many good characters in Band of Brothers. And they're all, you know, Band of Brothers is is about as close to historically accurate as you can get in a in a, in a war film. From not only what the characters do in the book, but the the gear they wear and, and and everything like that and so there's so many awesome characters in band of brothers from you know dick winters uh to you know some of my favorite ones are you got bill garnier and malarkey and lipton i mean i mean there's so i mean you could just basically list the entire cast and they all do from a soldier standpoint very awesome inspiring heroic things but the one that I always thought was just so cool was Lieutenant Spears. And he's not in it as much as some of the other main characters, mainly because he's not originally in Easy Company. But you know, don't get me wrong, there are some flaws with him as a character, right? And we'll we'll talk we'll talk about that. But I always just really liked his character. And there was something about him that was just kind of mythical. And they, they kind of talk about in the that in the film at the end of kind of the Battle of the Bulge uh, episodes. And, you know, he, did he or didn't he really kill those prisoners on, on D-Day? But the scene that really grabbed me and made me like him, and I and kind of like the Black Hawk Down, I used to go into my backyard and play this scene out, and I would just run around my backyard. And that is the scene when Easy Company is assaulting the village of Foy, and their commander kind of breaks down and has a mental breakdown. And so Dick Winters sends in Spears to relieve him of command, take control of the of the assault, and push through and take and take the objective. And he runs across the field by himself, runs through an eighty eight, you know, round that explodes near him, assesses the situation, takes control, makes decisive decisions, 
and then leads the assault in, you know, by not by himself, but he, you know, leads the assault in as the new commander. And everyone can immediately see the change in the leadership from uh, Dyke to Spears. And it, you know, the leadership that he has is one of the things that always drew me to him. And then the part that I used to play is when they get into the town and there's another company on the other side of Foy assaulting from the other direction. They're supposed to link up and then push through the rest of the town. And they haven't been able to link up and they don't know where they are. And he basically says, stay here, I'll be right back. And then takes off and runs through the German-held part of the town, links up with I Company, and then he turns around and runs back through all under fire. It is such, it, it's incredible. It's an, it's an, it's almost unbelievable. If, if you didn't have the reports from the Easy Company members that were there and witnessed it, you would almost believe that it was fake. That he just runs through German fire, right past the German troops and the German armor, links up with the other unit, makes some command decisions, and then runs back to take control of his unit again. It's crazy. It's crazy. And of course when you watch it, that's going to be cool to you. And this is, you know, he's, he's got grenades hanging off his, off of his, you know, uh, uniform and he's carrying the Thompson submachine gun. And it's just very, very cool. And I used to go in my backyard and we had this little gun that we'd made look like a Thompson. We had like taped a stick that looked like the Thompson magazine to it. And we would use it as a Thompson. And uh, I would just like run around my backyard and pretend that I was under fire from Germans and stuff like that. So I always just thought he was like super, super cool. All right, moving on. So I didn't look up his real name. I'm sure his character has an actual name in the movie, but in the movie, they all just call him Red. And that's one of the Navy SEALs from Tears of the Sun. And that's played by Cole Hauser. And he, the other thing you may recognize him from is he uh, plays... He's in um, the Yellowstone. And the movie itself, Tears of the Sun, is not great. It's not great. But there are some cool scenes in it from a Bruce Willis action movie standpoint. So it doesn't claim to be based on history or based, you know, based on anything real. You kind of have to take everything in this movie with a grain of salt. It's, it's all done for the cool factor, in, in my opinion. When you watch it as a soldier and you see all the little, you know, like, that's eh, kind of over the top. Everything is kind of over the top. These guys are just, everything about them is just meant to be cool. And I love the movie. I can't help it. Like, it, it's not a great, great movie, but I, for some reason, just really, really like it. And Cole Hauser's character in the movie is... He's just kind of a cool guy. They're all they're all kind of cool. The guy with the mohawk and you know even Bruce Willis and there's a couple snipers that are, you know, pretty cool. But he read in the movie, he's carrying an M60 like it's an M4 and he's running and jumping over logs and placing claymores and running back through and he's, you know, uh, he's running back to scout out the enemy and see how close they are and then catch back up with the unit. Uh, he's just doing all these kind of cool soldier, the stuff you kind of imagine as a kid that soldiers do, you know, kind of a thing. Um, I always just thought he was just awesome. And they think he's dead and he's wounded and the airstrikes coming in and he's running through the long grass and everything like that. And he barely makes it back in time. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to, 
to like describe about him other than that I just kind of thought he was just super cool. Right, the next guy I want to talk about is Tristan from King Arthur. And he's played by Mads Mikkelsen. If you've ever seen the movie King Arthur, they do kind of... Tr- they try and link themselves to history from the stone that was found that describes a Roman centurion named Arturius something something. And he was stationed in Britain during during this time. And so they try and link the myth of King Arthur to history via this Roman centurion named Arturius or Arthur. And then that's where the history ends. <laughs> Pretty much. Everything else about the movie is, uh, you know, fanciful. It's all fantasy. But I still love the movie because it has that kind of link to history from the Romans and the Sarmatians and the Saxons invasions and things like that. That, that All of these things kind of did happen, but there were no Knights of the Round Table and they're pretty sure there was no actual historical Arthur figure and, and things like that. But... Talking about Tristan specifically and why I was drawn to him, he's just super cool. When you look at the way he dresses and the way he fights, um, everything about him is cool. He's basically a sniper with the recurve bow, and he's got this kind of samurai-esque, you know, warrior ethos about him. He's carrying, you know, I think the sword's actually... Chinese, which he would not have been carrying that kind of sword at that time, but it's a saber, and uh, he uses it like a katana. The you know the I think that's the kind of the what they were trying to portray him as as kind of like a Mongol samurai. And either way, it's awesome. He's the best fighter. He's just slicing through guys left and right. My brother and I used to joke about, because he he dies in the final battle. And my brother and I used to joke about that when he goes up against the head, the head Saxon, and he doesn't kill him in like two moves or less, he's like, oh no, (laughs) I'm not going to make it because I can't kill this guy in two moves. Because everyone else he fights, it's either a single bow shot like through the eye or just like a parry slice, the guy's dead. Uh, it's just, yeah, he's just awesome. Uh, he's got the hawk and he's kind of the scout and he goes out ahead and, you know, he's, he's doing all those kind of cool things. And then at the end battle, when they, when the, all of the knights of the round table, the Sarmatians put on their, their final, you know, boss armor, so to speak, his is very Mongoloid inspired. Uh, he's got the kind of like helmet that kind of has like the earpieces that fan out that's very Mongol, Mongol-esque. And his armor is kind of Roman and Mongol-inspired. Um, he just, you know, his armor has like throwing knives built into the armor. It's it's very cool. He's just, everything about him is just kind of just cool. I keep using that, I'm going to use that word the the entire time. But um, yeah, I always, I always thought, and I didn't want him to die. I always have this thing where like, when I watch a movie and I pick out a guy that I like, I always think, oh, well, he's going to die. And a lot of the times it's correct. And that as soon as I started watching this movie, I was like, oh, man, this guy's awesome. Like, oh, he's probably going to die. And then he does. You know, <laughs> he, die, he dies in the, in the last battle. All right, moving right along. And we'll talk about Maximus from Gladiator, played by Russell Crowe. And I don't know how you can't just love everything about 
Maximus from the lines he says to the armor he wears throughout the movie. You know, he starts out wearing Roman armor and he just fills it out. He's got a wolf on his chest and he's got a you know pet wolf with him, although you know it's a German shepherd in the movie, but it's supposed to be a wolf. And he's delivering these amazing speeches to his to his men, and he's fighting in the battle with his men, the commanding general in the in the thick of it. And then he becomes a slave, and he, you see his armor slowly progress and get cooler and cooler and cooler until the final kind of boss battle with Commodus, you know, in the in the Colosseum. Everything about him is just awesome. Um, you know, he's he's about to be executed in the middle of the forest. And he fights off his execution, kills all those guys, and he, you know, he's spewing out one-liners through the entire thing. Then he becomes a gladiator, and he's you know one on six or one on seven, whatever it is, and he's chopping off heads, and he's just waylaying through guys. Then they get to the next battle, and you know he's taking command of everybody and becoming the general, the gladiator general again, and. You know, rewriting you know history, so to speak. You know, the the Battle of Zama and that line about you know didn't the Carthaginians lose and everything like that. It's great. Maximus is awesome. Uh, everything about him is just intense, and the quotes almost give you chills when you're watching the movie. And I've said this about a bunch of movies. We'll cover Gladiator because it's so rooted in history and historical figures and battles and what happened and whatnot, but it's a historical fiction movie. There is no real character that, that Max... I mean, some people will say, yes, there was this general that he is based on, and we'll talk about that too, but he is not a real character. Maximus is not a real character. The events that happened in the movie didn't happen in real life, and they get some things wrong, historically speaking, as well, which we'll talk about during the movie. But Maximus himself, I mean, my brother and I used to play play gladiator and we were at my cousin's house and they had like football like American football pads and we used to put on those football pads like they were like the Roman armor because they have the shoulder things that kind of come down they kind of you know they cover your chest and we had toy swords and we would we would play gladiator so it was always it's always very special to me when there's a character that I would like gravitate towards and then like go and play him when I was younger um but yeah so now we'll move on to Lieutenant Schaefer in Where Eagles Dare, played by Clint Eastwood. And there's a there's a bunch of other soldiers out there that I thought about putting on this list. But I remember watching this movie as a child with my dad and with my brother. And Where Eagles Dare was just like almost like nothing I'd ever seen before. It was such an awesome movie. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. It is it's amazing. I love where Eagles dare. I mean, they kill like about 10,000 Nazis in in the movie, but it's a it's like a special commando squad with an American and some British and they're going to rescue an American general. I don't want to spoil everything about it, but there's mystery and there's spy. It, it has like it has a little bit of everything in the movie. You know, it's like a special mission in the midst of World War II. There's mystery about some of the characters. It's a, you know, there's some spy elements involved. They they're rock climbing and there's a massive escape and there's a twist at the end and they're killing Germans around every corner and they they never run out of bullets and they never run out of bombs and it's it's just it's just awesome. I mean, he you know uh, Clint Eastwood plays this kind of ranger, uh, American ranger who's assigned to this British commando squad to go on this special mission, and 
everything about where Eagles Dare is is just really really cool. It's got Richard Burton in it, Clint Eastwood, a few other, a few other guys from that kind of time period where they're in a lot of kind of war films that you, that you'll recognize. And yeah, I mean it's he's just a cool character. He's Clint Eastwood, so he plays he plays the man with no name but a World War II commando. And like I said, they never run out of bullets. He's throwing bombs. He's cool under fire. It, it's just really, really cool. And I remember watching Where Eagles Dare and it kind of being just like a new experience to World War II that I hadn't experienced before. Because when you watch movies like The Longest Day or A Bridge Too Far, movies like that, it's about a real mission and real soldiers doing the real things and it's kind of conventional forces and and things like that which is awesome but where eagles dare is this special behind enemy lines commando raid kind of a movie and i i just watched it and i was like oh my goodness i've never seen anything like this before and clint eastwood of course is clint eastwood and he's doing clint eastwood things in the movie so how could you not love him and i never really played it but i just always always kind of held that movie in high in, in super high regard. And so that brings us on to the last one, and that is my honorable mention. And that is the entire group of the Dirty Dozen. And the Dirty Dozen and Where Eagles Dare are very similar in, in the way they're kind of filmed, the feel they have about them, and the kind of the subject matter. It's a special mission behind enemy lines. Go kill a bunch of Nazis before the D-Day invasion so that you kind of wipe out some of the higher command that can make decisions for the counterattack from the Germans. And every, you know, it's it's this, um, you know, American colonel, he goes to the prison and he recruits 12, 12 guys to take with him on this mission. They're either life in prison, long sentences, or death, you know, death penalty. And they're going to go on this mission. And if they survive, then they get their sentences, you know, redacted and they go back into the into the regular service. And they all kind of have like a special ability you know it's kind of like a like almost like a like a video game kind of squad everyone has a special ability that they can do you got the big strong guy you kind of got the wisecracking guy you got the weird guy who's kind of like a wild card who's going to mess everything up you got the super athletic guy you, know, you got jim brown playing it uh you i mean the the cast is stacked donald sutherland lee marvin oh man i'm, I'm gonna forget a whole bunch of them but um yeah everything in it is cool and I remember used to playing, playing Dirty Dozen when I was younger as well. And I would recreate the Jim Brown run where he's running and pulling grenade pins and dropping them down the ventilation shafts and and all of that. And it's it's these special, it's, you know, it's kind of this very, it's like a special squad of men to do this special mission. And so I didn't want to pick just one guy from the Dirty Dozen. Uh, I just, you know, all of them together. It's just, it's a fun movie. You know, it's not like, when you watch Saving Private Ryan, you don't really have fun while you watch Saving Private Ryan. It's intense and it's realistic and it's amazing, but you're not laughing and joking and and kind of saying like, oh, this is a lot of fun to watch Saving Private Ryan. When you watch The Dirty Dozen, you're laughing, you're having a good time. It's There's some comedy in it, but just the whole movie has a kind of like fun feel about it. So... That that's one of the reasons why yeah I just I just love that movie so that kind of covers the list of kind of ten of my favorite 
kind of movie soldiers, and there's a ton more out there, and maybe I'll do a list of 10 most underrated movie soldiers or, you know, things like that. I, I don't know. But we'll, we'll do some more of these in the future. And I just appreciate everyone listening, and just know I'm hard at work on the next episode. We'll get it out as soon as we can. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Based on History podcast, and we'll see you later. Adios.